And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, October 18th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, here's something else the State Department has to do expeditiously. Plus, a tough picture emerges for women veterans. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Department of Veterans Affairs is looking at artificial intelligence to address burnout among its medical providers. And as a dictation tool that would allow doctors to spend more time with patients and less time on paperwork. The VA is testing out these use cases as part of AI tech sprints it previewed at a recent summit. For a look at what's to come, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the director of VA's National Artificial Intelligence Institute, Gil Alterovitz. So the AI tech sprint is essentially a model for ways that we can engage with outside stakeholders, uh, industry, uh, academia, nonprofits, other organizations uh, around a particular theme. We actually have a SOP on this uh, on our uh, website, so it kind of goes through the process. It's a a three-month type of process where we uh, work with the different organizations around a particular theme. And in this case, we have a couple themes around provider burnout. There's the uh, ambient uh, voice analysis slash dictation one where you're able to take conversations from between physicians and patients, you know, of course, with their consent and leverage that to save that information and into a note. It basically makes it a lot easier to save that note, create that note for the medical record. Again, that's something that we'll begin testing as part of this text print in a simulated environment at first and kind of evaluate how it works uh, rather than you know leveraging it on uh, actual patients at the beginning. And the other part of the AI text print is around looking at community uh, information that uh, may be usable within the VA. So veterans have an, an option to go outside the VA to different community locations outside of the you know the actual medical center facility. And that information often comes back in the form of a fax or a scanned PDF kind of document. So as an image, it's not readily accessible to uh, physicians if they're trying to search for certain parts of the document, certain keywords and so forth. And so what this part of the sprint would do is see if that information using uh, optical character recognition, natural language processing, and those technologies to enable physicians to more quickly be able to look through and analyze documents like that. So those are the themes. Uh, As I mentioned, it's around a a three-month kind of period where there's, at the end, it kind of ends with a demonstration of what uh, has been uh, created in these areas. Uh, Afterwards, we then uh, select winners for prizes. And in the past, we've seen that that national competition was leverageable as justification for further contracting. You know, that's what we've seen in the past working well. And so we're hoping this can uh, potentially be leveraged to take a look and see what potential solutions are out there in, in this space and see which ones might be applicable here. From what I just heard here is that this is a model where it's a public-private partnership type deal where uh, the VA obviously has a role here, but they're working with people in this field to kind of incubate these ideas and, and see what the art of the possible is. Is that a correct way of putting it? 
the AI tech sprint essentially uh, comes at a really early phase, right? Before there's any official uh, partnerships, uh, you know, anyone can really apply that meets uh, the guidelines. Uh, it will be, pu you know, it's, it's publicly posted when uh, people, you know, for people to apply, will, it is something that uh, anyone can uh, apply for when it's posted. And then after, and then uh, there's, uh, you know, once they win the prize, there's no commitment or or anything like that. Um, so it's it's um, more like a prize rather than a contract for the AI tech sprint part. Now, after that, as I mentioned in the, in the past, you know, we've seen that that can lead to potential, uh, you know, contracts, partnerships, and so forth. So it is kind of a potential way to get to that stage allowing you know all the different organizations to kind of learn from each other these organizations that apply they get to see and learn from the different subject matter experts uh, within the va around the type of va information that we have the type of needs the va has and uh, we get to see you know what's out there in the marketplace as well all right thanks for clarifying that and you mentioned earlier that these tech sprints they are all broadly themed around you know addressing VA clinician burnout, vet provider burnout. It seems like these particular use cases are really all broadly themed around AI as a force multiplier for the VA workforce. Just tell me, you know, why is this the focus of these tech sprints? Why is this the priority that the VA has chosen to emphasize as part of these tech sprints going forward? Yeah, so we've had tech sprints on a, a number of different areas from clinical trial matching uh, and search to focusing on areas where veterans were not currently being served by the VA. And this year's theme is around one of the three priorities that were outlined in the, the speech that you referred to earlier, one of which was looking at provider burnout. There are two other areas that are also uh, being investigated that are within this uh, topic area. That is uh, within the topic area of looking at how different uh, use cases can help in different areas. So provider burnout being one of them. Another one is around looking at HR uh, and advancing that priority of, as well toward faster, improved hiring type of actions. And then there's another use case looking at scheduling slash clinical reminders and that area. And you mentioned earlier how VA Secretary McDonough pointed out that the VA is the first federal agency to launch this trustworthy AI framework. Gil, just tell me a little bit more about the framework. So the AI has been at the forefront of uh, developing and working to ensure that trustworthy AI is looked at from the beginning or as early as possible in uh, within the development process. We've seen over uh, the years a number of uh, different items come out, whether it be executive orders, um, whether it be uh, the AI blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights, whether it be risk management frameworks and others. And and what saw is that, you know, so the VA has some agency-specific needs and, and principles uh, as well. And so there was this need to look at a, a single framework that could serve the VA as a whole, right, that integrated these different ones. And we're leveraging that moving forward across the different uh, use cases. So it's a harmonized way to look at the different use cases at the VA. Gil Alterovitz, director of the VA's National Artificial Intelligence Institute, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a tough picture emerges for women veterans. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Women veterans who were wounded or injured are more likely to have post-traumatic stress disorder and to commit suicide than men. That's according to the Wounded Warrior Project, which surveyed 18,000 male and female veterans. Joining me with more of the findings, the project vice president, Tracy Farrell. Ms. Farrell, good to have you with us. Thanks so much, Tom, for this opportunity to speak with you. And what were you looking at here, and how did you go about finding this information? So, you know, what's amazing to me, and I I served for 22 and a half years, but women represent the fastest growing population in the military and the veteran communities. And yet, time after time, we're hearing that women, as they transition from service, don't have the support in their communities that they need in order to thrive as a civilian. And so we took information from our annual warrior survey, which we do every other year, and have 5,000 responses from women. And then we culled through those responses and found, as you said, that there's some specific challenges that women face with regards to financial wellness, access to care, mental wellness, social health, military transition, and military sexual trauma. And from that, we showed in this report, which is available online on our website, what those differences were, and we made some recommendations on the way forward. All right. And so I guess these recommendations in many ways fall on the Veterans Affairs Department and the Veterans Health Administration. That and I would say with regards to transition programs, a a matching up of DOD and VA, as well as political appointees and representatives. There's some policy recommendations as well. And then, as always, Wounded Warrior Project is a veteran service organization, a nonprofit, and we have recommendations for our peers in that space as well. And just some of the details of the findings with respect to mainly suicide, which Mm -hmm. is just a persistent and terrible issue that VA and so many organizations have been trying to deal with in their own different ways. What is the fact there that you found with respect to female veterans that were injured or wounded? Wounded Warrior Project women warriors are more likely to present with moderate to severe symptoms of post-traumatic stress, depression, and anxiety than their male peers. And the rates of suicidal ideation and the prevalence of at least one attempted suicide, as you mentioned, are higher in women warriors than in their male warriors. So access to care is something that we really focus on. Is the VA manned and able to give the mental health treatment that is required? Do we take away the barriers to care, such as child care or hours of operation or telehealth? You know, a lot of people have embraced telehealth after COVID, and we see that women have taken that up on an uptick higher than men. So with regard to mental wellness, we're just looking at how do we better serve them and how do we ensure that women are on their feet as they engage in their communities? And looking at some of the survey results from a standpoint of where people served, the bulk, almost two-thirds, well, 61% were Army veterans. Mm -hmm. And in the last 20 years, it is Army that has taken the brunt of activities overseas that the United States has been engaged in. Only 18% of your respondents were Navy and, you know, a small percentage in Coast Guard, 17% in Air Force. So they're more likely to be injured, at least in the last 20 or so years of experience, by virtue of being in the Army. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely right. But we also see military sexual trauma does not identify along specific service identification. And so that's an area that we've looked at 
over the years and how best to serve women warriors who experience MST. And again, that goes back to access to care and ensuring sensitivity within the VA and within those who serve women and men with military sexual trauma so that they don't have to keep on reliving their story and can get on the path to healing. In some ways, the sexual trauma is the worst kind of injury because it is inflicted by people you expect to be comrades. That's what we hear quite often, Tom, from those we serve. We're speaking with Tracy Farrell. She's vice president for partnerships and operations at the Wounded Warrior Project. Well, given these findings that you know women maybe have a worse time of it post-military, what are your main recommendations and for whom? Sure. So I think first and foremost is that first step of transition. The military to civilian transition process must be enhanced and and include ongoing support. You know, when I transitioned from the military, I thought I was just going to take off my military uniform and then the next day be this glorious civilian in the world. And I may have been, but in my own eyes, I wasn't quite there yet. It took me quite a few months to get accustomed to not being in the military anymore, to making sure I had my resume in line and to connecting with other veterans. And just a brief question there, you mentioned you were in for 22 years, a career really. Is there a difference, do you think, between people that might enlist, do their two or four years and then get out versus people that had a career where you were in uniform for, you know, a long time? I think there's two areas where there's differences. One is that of going in and coming out with perhaps not a college education, but deciding to go on for further education or perhaps going in at 18, vice 22 when I went into after college age, right? And your formative years are in the military. But I think the other thing that we find, because Wounded Warrior Project serves individuals who have been wounded, ill, or injured concurrent with their service, is a difference between getting out on your own terms or getting out because the military tells you to, um, because you're injured and can no longer serve. Many of the warriors I talked to thought this was going to be a career for them. They really enjoyed what they were doing and serving their nation. And then when they were injured, they couldn't do that anymore. And so that plan to stay in forever or for 20 or some years fell away from them and they didn't have a backup plan. And so that's the bigger differentiator, I find. Sure. All right. And uh, briefly, the transition services provided by the military, we often hear they could be a little bit stronger. Was that your experience? That was uh, my experience as well, and I think they've come a long way. In fact, I know they have because I follow what they're doing, and they've developed some internship processes. They've focused more on collaboration with the VA, but I do think, especially with regards to women, I think a supplemental track during this transition program that focuses on gender-specific health care benefits and services available to women veterans in their communities would benefit all of the women transitioning. Women just don't know what's in their communities when they transition. And them being 10% right now of the veteran population, that's a small amount. We're going to grow to 18% by 2040, which is larger. But we have to ensure that women veterans are aware of the support that's out there for them. And all those VFW halls are going to have to accommodate themselves, I think, as the years go by. And anyway, we were talking about recommendations before I interrupted you. What about for Veterans Affairs? Because they've made a lot of progress, too, in treating women over the past couple of decades. Yeah, they have done so much in the past years to establish some women health clinics, expand their offerings with regards to women's health care. But it's not prevalent across the country. 
So we need, as a nation, to continue to leverage community-based resources and telehealth, as I mentioned before, to address some of the barriers of care that women experience. And for employers who want to hire veterans or might be required to hire veterans under some federal contract, and for federal agencies that often prefer to hire veterans, what should those people know that are not care providers but are job providers and presumably they want people to succeed? Sure. I think there's a couple of things. We need to somehow still have a stigma about veterans having PTSD in the workplace, and that should be erased, right? And so I think embracing the qualities of goodness, the qualities of leadership, the qualities of followership, the qualities of initiative that the military imbues in their population is really important. And don't look just at the resume, but look at what the person offers. And there's tons of organizations helping veterans get jobs, so connect with them. And there is one uh, former military officer out there, and he's written a book of Bill Toti, just simply saying, don't hire because of perceived leadership skills in the military, but rather because of skills, skills, things you can mm-hmm. actually do. And yeah. not to presume everybody's going to be a commanding general type of person <laughs> just because they're a veteran. I mean, that that's all a bad stereotype, too, isn't it? Yeah, it is. In fact, I was a military police officer, and a lot of the men and women that left my command wanted to go work in the police force or the FBI or the CIA, and were able to use the skill sets that they learned as military police, whether it be investigators or patrols or even overseas, to benefit their communities in that capacity. And just briefly, what are you doing with this report? I mean, it comes out every couple of years. It's comprehensive. There's you know 40 pages of findings here. Who should read it, and how are you getting it out there? A couple weeks ago, on the launch of the report, we brought 50 women warriors to Capitol Hill and visited with those ladies' uh, representatives and the congressmen and just talked about the challenges that they were having. And the report is available online, and so it's accessible to anybody who would like to look at it. It's at woundedwarriorproject.org. And we're sharing it widely with the general public, with veteran service organizations, with the VA, and with DOD as interested so that they can hear what's happening to women warriors across our nation. Tracy Farrell is Vice President for Partnerships and Operations at the Wounded Warrior Project. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Have a great day. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that complete report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, practical advice for contractors dealing with new proposed cybersecurity rules. But first, here's something else the State Department has to do expeditiously. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. An urgent report from the Government Accountability Office is aimed at the State Department. GAO called for State to, its word, expeditiously get on with a cybersecurity risk management program. Now, State has a plan. It just has to carry it out. We get more now from GAO's Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity, Jennifer Franks. Ms. Franks, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. And What's going on here? Because expeditiously, that was in the headline. That means, like, get on with it already, folks, like now. Absolutely. We've been doing this work on behalf of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. And with the urgency of really needing to look at their cybersecurity practices, 
establishing some roles within this chief information security officer's ability to just carry out protecting the department's systems and networks, and then looking at ways to just better detect, respond, and recover from the evolving cyber threats and cybersecurity incidents, we really do need them to take heed to implementing some of these recommendations a little bit swiftly. Because you found they did identify risk management roles and responsibilities, so they have the belly buttons to push, you might say. And they have developed a cyber risk management strategy at state, but then there's a whole stack of X's and red circles that looks really scary, including mitigated the cybersecurity risks. They have not done the actual risk mitigation. Tell us more. Absolutely. So what's key here is they, like you noted, had a cybersecurity strategy in place, which is big because the department-wide guidance for the across the federal agency says, have a plan, have one in place, which is, it's, it's good. So that was a positive, but the Department of State runs in a very insular organization. And this is not unique for state. A lot of organizations do have a very decentralized way of working for their operations. But because of this, state needs to really look at how they assess risk across the different bureaus and really look at the department-wide efforts for identifying and mitigating their cybersecurity risks. We only looked at a subset of their systems, but they have 494 information systems and only 44% of them had an authorization to operate, which means that they were cleared to actually be online operating in their environment, which also means they had not been fully assessed for risk compliance. Yeah, so the ATO is a crucial part for government operations, for government agencies to have before they can deploy a system. And is that evidence of that decentralized, federated way that they go about this, do you think? Absolutely. Right. So there's no central authority. I mean, well, there's this office of the CIO. The question then becomes, does the State Department CIO and the technology organization and CISO organization under CIO have sufficient sway over these systems to make sure they run through there before they're operated? And that's something that we were finding. They do not. We were actually discovering that because of a lack of organization, a lack of communication, the CIO actually has very limited ability to see across the different bureaus, see across the organization, and even have that strength of communication and really determine what's going on across those different bureaus. Each of those different bureaus have their different organizations, they have their different funding, they have their own sets of operations that are very insular from where the chief information officer has purview, has the authority to actually say what should be done and what should be authoritatively authorized in that an organization. She only can see what they're permitting her to see. So we were asking or we were even recommending in our report for the CIO to have more authorities more insight into what's going on across the organization. In other words, it's not enough to be able to set policy for all the sub-organizations, but they have to be able to verify. Absolutely. Got it. And you also found that there is some pretty old stuff running, and that poses a particular risk from just ancient software that may not be updated and might be vulnerable. Absolutely. And why this was critical is because, as we know, uh, evolving cybersecurity vulnerabilities and threats around the globe are increasing every single day. 
And with the unique evolving mission of the State Department, they manage our national security around the globe. And they have bureaus and posts that protect us around the globe. And because of this, we were actually looking at their abilities to detect, respond to, and even recover from cybersecurity incidents. So because of this, we were actually reviewing their capabilities to have that incident response program in place. So they do have 24 seven operations. They have a team, which is a positive that is looking at the continuous monitoring efforts to scope their network. Great. But then when you look a little deeper into your security operations and your IT infrastructure, we then found that the hardware and software aspects of what you're using to support your infrastructure, yes, you're running with outdated information software, hardware. And some of them were going back to 13 years of being end of life. So they're unsupported. We're speaking with Jennifer Franks. She's Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity at the Government Accountability Office. And one other finding that we want to discuss here is they have not implemented a continuous monitoring program. I thought continuous monitoring originally, like 15, 18 years ago, originated at the State Department. And so that's a pretty bad weakness in your cyber operation. Absolutely. And continuous monitoring, you're right. It's been around for a while. It's been a metric that all federal agencies have been stated to definitely need to be implementing into their various organizations. This is also an area that would help them to assess the likelihood of events happening in their environments. This would be helpful for being able to better detect and respond to cybersecurity incidents. But this is also a vulnerability or a weakness to their insular approach. They're just large and there's just so much going on. And they have an approach to the strategy again, but because there is so much, they did not really look at the department-wide efforts to really driving home what could then be done to really implementing that continuous-wide monitoring program. Essentially, you found that the technical problems with old software and lack of ATO for systems that are running derives from the insulated culture at state. A good example of culture and reality, so to speak, interacting in an important way. Yes. All right. And for GAO even, there's a long list of recommendations here, 15 in all. They are all open Just highlight the recommendations for us besides expeditiously get your plan done. Yes, there are 15 in this current report conducting the bureau level risk assessments. There are 28 bureaus that own information systems that we did review. So we are just asking them to look at their abilities to look at cybersecurity across those different bureaus. We want them to develop plans to mitigate the cyber vulnerabilities that they even previously identified. You know, look at what you had open before GAO even got to the agency to audit your entities. We want you to look at perhaps ensuring that your information systems have valid authorizations to operate. Again, we only looked at a subset of systems, but there are 494 systems. They all need to be authorized to operate, not just your subset. We want to really increase the ability for the CIO to have more access, more asset ability to look into all the bureaus and the posts around the world so that she can really have that ability to provide continuous monitoring services to look towards 
how she can help strengthen the controls around the threats and the vulnerabilities that are plaguing the networks for the State Department. We also just want to look at how we're better able to, you know, provide continuous monitoring services, contingency plans in the event of a service disruption, because sometimes cyber events happen. It's not an if, it's a when. So should an event happen? Are we prepared? So having the necessary contingency plans in place to be ready, we're going to ask for you to look at those operations. And by the way, the person we've been talking about, CIO, is Dr. Kelly Fletcher. We should mention her by name. She's you know struggling to get this done. But it sounds like this needs to be the deputy secretary for management type of person to really drive this kind of effort above the CIO. Clearly, yes. the secretary of state's got other things to do, but there are deputies that do management. And that yes. seems like that's where the effort needs to start. And we actually direct the recommendations to the secretary. Absolutely. So far, do they agree with most of the recommendations, even though they're not implemented? Absolutely. They have concurred with all of our open recommendations right now, and they are actively starting to work towards implementing them. And we are actively still working with the agency to see that they are carrying forth with their promise. Jennifer Franks is Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Expedite the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, practical advice for contractors dealing with new cybersecurity rules. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. They're coming two tough new rules from the Federal Acquisition Regulation Council, but originating with the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. They have to do with contractor incident reporting and for how contractors button up unclassified systems. Analysis now from Haynes Boone procurement attorney Zach Prince. And Zach, let's start with how much of the contractor world do you think these rules will even cover? Well, it really depends on how the FAR Council ends up refining the definitions. But as it is now, at least, the very first rule Uh, The cyber threat incident reporting rule could apply to at least 75% of contractors. The FAR Council said that in the proposed rule because it, it touches anybody that has a contract that includes some information and communication technology, which is a hugely broad definition of things. Right, because even services contractors might have some hardware somewhere just to enable the delivery of the service that they're developing. They likely will. I can think of very few examples of contractors that really would have nothing to do with information technology. And it could spread. I mean, if they're providing a service or even developing software, which will run somewhere, if it runs on a cloud or there's some cloud service brought into this, that kind of brings the whole cloud chain in under this rule potentially. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've seen attacks that impact a huge swath of federal infrastructure just coming from one provider. So the reason that we need this to be so broad is because the impact could be so broad to the government. And the specific rule itself on incident reporting and information sharing, let's start with that one. What would it require contractors specifically to do here? So it's got a couple components. The first and biggest part of it is an obligation to report cyber incidents. And so under the DOD analogous rule, 252-204-7012, it's been around for quite a while now, 
you have to report a cyber incident that impacts contractor information system, which roughly means CUI is involved in some way. This rule goes a lot further. This requires contractors to disclose whenever they've discovered indicators that there's been a security incident, which is defined to include any event or series of events which pose actual or imminent jeopardy to the integrity, confidentiality, et cetera, of information systems. But not just that, also anything that could constitute a violation of a acceptable use policy. And I don't know that they thought that part through because you remember there were cases in the last couple decades of people who violated use policies by, you know, say misrepresenting your age on Facebook. That's technically a violation of a use policy. I don't think that's what the FAR Council is thinking that they need reported to Homeland Security and then the FBI, but that's what the rules that they drafted suggest. Right. These rules originated with CISA, as we said at the top, and then now they're being delivered through the way they have to, the FAR Council. But it sounds like maybe they just threw everything they could think of into the basket. And maybe in the commenting period, which I think goes to early December, they'll sort it out or pare it down. I think this is going to be an iterative process. You're going to get a bunch of comments and then another draft and then comments and draft. And I I think you're going to be looking at a rule probably later part of next year, if not in 2025. And the issue then, you know, is some of the large contractors have this capability. They have their own NOCs, you know, network operations centers and security operations centers, because they're that big. And so they can easily adapt, probably. But small businesses and subcontractors may or may not have the ability to know, let alone develop a report of a possible breach, given the technology base they have and the knowledge they have. It'll be a learning curve, right? At the least, the government wants you to be able to, if you know or have indicators of an attack or potential attack, tell the government because they want to know and be able to help. I I think a lot of this is the government wanting contractors to stop siloing information, get the government involved, get the FBI involved, and stop the cyber attacks as early as possible. And then the other rule is standardizing cybersecurity requirements for unclassified federal information systems. That's incumbent on contractors also or on agencies? Uh, This is also on contractors, but it's got a little bit of both components, right? Because so DOD for many years now has been using the NIST 800-171 framework. We've got CMMC looming on the horizon that's essentially mirroring that same framework. Civilian agencies have been all over the place. Mostly they've just been doing, well, almost nothing in a lot of their contracts. But then in the last year or two, I've started seeing clauses show up that are insanely broad and ill-defined and really doesn't tell, don't tell contractors what to do. They say things like, your information technology will comply with FISMA and various requirements that may or may not apply and they don't tell you how they apply. They really don't give any guidance that's sufficient to tell you how you're complying with your contract. The point of this clause is to mandate that agencies during the procurement process do analysis and they identify which requirements apply and how so that contractors are on notice and can actually implement those requirements. Right, because these rules are coming through the FAR Council, that means it will be incumbent on agencies to ensure that contracts have clauses expressing what these rules are after in those contracts. Yeah, and it can't just be guesswork. I mean, you know, the problem in a lot of instances is that contracting officers are not cybersecurity specialists. They've got mandates coming down from up high saying 
you know, include this super broad series of provisions and they don't have much discretion, right? They might have the warrant, but in reality, you know, we know how these things work. They can't say, you know, we're going to waive this year or even tell you what applies because our higher up said it all applies. So now they're going to have to actually say, go through a, a process, say this applies, this applies, this applies, this doesn't. And then you as a contractor will bid on that assumption and be able to implement. Are those soft footsteps I hear coming up behind the steps of False Claims Act? <laughs> it's definitely possible for both of these clauses. Uh, an interesting thing with the cyber re- incident reporting clause is it is going to include a mandatory representation with bids that says current accurate and complete reporting has been done for any cyber incident that has uh, occurred previously under this clause and that you've been flowing down the clause appropriately. And that's the language that you see in the Truth and Negotiations Act or now, I guess, the Truthful Cost and Pricing Data Act, where current, accurate and complete is used. And that becomes the hook for False Claims Act liability. Sure. Tina has some pretty sharp nails when it comes to push comes to shove there. And so what are you advising contractors to do? For example, are there any provisions and these are long rules that you are advising them to get up on their hind legs and say, wait a minute here in the commenting. At this point, you know, we're, we're working on comments that are just going to be asking a lot of questions to define terms better. The definition of information technology is really, really broad here. How the, the reporting obligation actually applies to contractors is not clear. The definition of the incident itself is really broad. So a lot of the process for the next couple of months is going to be trying to get clarity on basic definitions. There are some provisions in here that are really challenging to swallow. The standardizing rule that's going to come out has this indemnification provision that is frankly crazy. It applies a strict liability standard. It doesn't matter how uh, whether you were negligent or not. If there's any damage that happens to the government because of information that you've introduced into a government system, you have to cover every damage the government could possibly have. I mean, that's nuts. You would never accept that in a commercial context. Why should the government be getting that, particularly with small contractors? Yeah, so potentially then you could be on the hook for, and I'm just making this up as a potential, but the 10 years of paying the credit report protection program for 10,000 employees or something. Or 100,000 or a million. I mean, look at the size of the OPM breaches that have happened. They're huge. So yeah, I mean, that's right. And this applies below the simplified acquisition threshold too. So You've got a $50,000 contract that this clause applies to, and you know somehow a virus gets into your program through no fault of your own in this instance. You still are on the hook for a million employees having credit monitoring for 10 years. For that matter, the virus could come in from the government itself. <laughs> yeah, that, I wouldn't be too surprised. <laughs> right. Well, they're on the way, and so everybody should comment. Zach Prince is a partner at the law firm Haynes Boone. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until a year ago, the Office of the Secretary of Defense was an outlier when it comes to IT governance. Now, it has 19,000 employees, but no single person was in charge of making sure everyone has a decent user experience and no one in charge of delivering common IT services. Well, that all changed last October, and the office of the OSD Chief Information Officer is now marking its one-year anniversary. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu spoke to the person holding that job, Danielle Metz. 
I think we have a very good handle in terms of what we mean by common IT. And I think quite simply, it really is defined as end user devices in the network. And then the service desk that supports that. And so we have that baseline. That's what's really codified in the MOA that should be um, signed out relatively soon. And then I think once we professionalize and normalize and standardize common IT and how we engage and prioritize and resource effectively for those activities, that's a key foundational block for us to then to move uh, to mission IT. So I think, you know, you got to be able to uh, dribble the basketball before you can like either slam dunk it. And so right now what we have to do is we have to get our basics really well defined and understood and working uh, properly and getting those business processes to kind of undergird that. And then the next step will be building upon that to get to the more exquisite mission IT activities. Yeah. And one of those fundamentals, I think, has been the rollout of Microsoft 365 across the fourth estate. And, and starting this month, I, I think, up at the secret level, which is a big deal. Talk a bit about that rollout and how it's gone. Yes, that has been really extraordinary. We had a lot of success for the aisle five, uh, which was unclassified DOD 365. A lot of lessons learned. And one of the biggest things was ensuring that the user really understood the the complement of capabilities that were part of DoD 365, not just the collaboration tools, but the cloud-based uh, OneDrive, how to really use Teams most effectively um, to be able to get the most out of it. Um, and then ensuring that we had the policy so we weren't hindering the use of Teams. Think you know, laptops that had uh, cameras or microphones disabled, right? So we really want to be able to really standardize that enhanced experience with DoD 365. And so a lot of that was ensuring that we had champions and people understanding the capabilities that were being deployed. And so we launched uh, over the summer our DoD 365 campaign within uh, OSD. And so we've been holding uh, what we call DoD 365 Excite, uh, days And so we're partnered with DISA and Microsoft um, and uh, DISA as a service provider as well. And so we had one um, in July. We have one coming up October 25th in the Mark Center. And it's really getting those evangelists excited about the capabilities for those who are really uh, forward leaning into the technology. And then they can help their peers and colleagues as we roll out these capabilities. As it relates to aisle six, um, DISA has been hard charging on that. We have about 50,000 um, users on aisle six, and that's representative of uh, defense uh, agencies' field activities, some ca- combatant commands. We have early adopters of the OSD. I'm an early adopter. I love it. Um, and we're scheduled to bring the rest of OSD in the Pentagon reservation to uh, DOD 365 on aisle six um, in the next couple of weeks. Um, and then from there, we'll all be on the same modernized environment, and then we can continue to spiral in those additional capabilities like Teams, like OneDrive, and have the same experience that we have on the unclassified for our classified. And, and talk a bit, if you could, about sort of the operational impact of having modern technology at the secret level. We were talking a bit off air that, that the existing tools are fairly antiquated at this point. They're extremely antiquated, mm-hmm. and they're a, a patchwork of things. And so over the past, I will say, 10 to 15 years, um, those who live on our classified environment to do their mission have had to really figure out how to kind of stitch together some collaboration capabilities and using really old school chat services that aren't very effective, um, aren't 
well used across the board. So you have different ways of being able to, to, need, to need to chat. Effectively, what aisle 6 DOD 365 does is it brings everybody together and we're all on team. So we're getting the same collaborative experience. We're able to do chat. We're able to do video. Um, we're able to collaborate on documents all at the same time. We're able to store it in a cloud-based environment, which is the OneDrive. None of that exists right now on, a, on the classified environment, but we are at the precipice of having all of this at our fingertips. I, I may have this wrong, but am I right that in the past, Sipper hasn't really been one network? It's been a bunch of fragmented separate networks that, that didn't always connect to each other very well. How much of that does having everybody on one 365 platform solve? Well, it's just like what we have in IO5 because of the unclassified networks fragmented as well mm-hmm. because we all have different enterprises. A cloud-based approach allows us to look and feel and act as if we're on the same environment because we are. We're in the cloud. Um, the networks are still going to be what the networks are. and There's modernization activities associated with um, bringing those up to a better standardized um, and consistent digital experience. But I think we're showcasing the importance of being able to all be on in the same environment to be able to work more jointly together to collaborate across. And it reduces the need of the creativity of the workforce to figure out how to do it. That's what I don't want them to do. I want them to use their creativity to actually do their job. Our job is to ensure that they have the right capabilities and tools to do their job better. So that push to 365, obviously, all by itself is a big, big jump to the cloud. What else are you doing to, to move uh, move yourselves into a position where you're uh, ready to adopt cloud services? Yeah, so what we're doing is we're taking a lot of the experiences that we had in my previous role um, as the deputy DOD CEO for IE and turning that inwardly to OSD. And so unfortunately, because OSD didn't have a CIO for a long time, they had to kind of figure out themselves what it meant to do cloud. And that was a really hard task. They being each of the 19 components. That is yeah. correct. So each individually trying to figure that out for themselves and not really having the, the uh, resources or community of practices or an entree in to, to, to come together. Danielle Metz, the Chief Information Officer for the Office of the Secretary of Defense, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. There's more to the interview. Hear it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.